Matthew chapter 1, this morning, please. Most Christmas carols are written way too high. I'm just going to say that so we can all go home realizing why some Christmas carols are hard to sing. That last one was nice. Those of you who aren't sopranos or tenors appreciated a lower range uh, for a Christmas song. It's also interesting when you study the Christmas carols that many of you probably grew up singing a lot of verses of and all. Um, Some of them are lacking in substance. I'll just say it that way. Um, You can only sing so many verses about a star, for example, in the first Noel, uh, because we really don't know that much about the star to sing five verses about it. Again, I'm on thin ice, I think, because people are like, wait a minute, I like that song. <laughs> I know, it just, Christmas songs challenge us uh, to, to think a little bit and maybe even think beyond those songs. And so uh, hopefully the ones we're singing will at least steer us toward that core message that we know and love. And we should love it. Uh, Christmas is a story of hope. It's what I want us to think on these next couple of weeks. Uh, that we are a people of hope. It's good news. And we, and we, we hold on to it. We believe it. Um, and we want others to taste the hope that we have. And so hopefully studying the hope of Christmas will not really be much of a time out at all from studying the advance of the kingdom. It's really just a, an added emphasis in realizing that as the kingdom settles into our hearts, that hope should overflow And we are gladly inviting others to join this journey homeward. Christmas is the story of hope. The songwriter said, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks that new and glorious morn, the dawning, the day spring that we sang of. There's hope at the dawn, the rising sun. Wesley borrowed Malachi's language there, the sun of righteousness, speaking of the sun as a burning ball of fire. That dawn, righteousness was dawning on the world as God revealed that righteousness in the perfection of his son. So Christmas is indeed a story of hope, and I want to offer you some hope for this Christmas season and beyond. It's not merely the hope of cultural Christmas with its songs and stories, the hope of family making it home for Christmas, the hope of things working out with the job or maybe a little bonus the hope of meeting that perfect someone like so many of the Christmas movies present, the hope of reconciled relationships, which would be indeed a beautiful story, the hope of peace in the world. I can't speak to how God might work in all of those kinds of circumstances, but I can speak to the bigger picture of hope, the hope on which Christmas is built the hope that Christmas defines for us. So in these next three weeks, I want us to consider Matthew chapter 1 as the New Testament introduction to hope. 
Christmas hope, gospel hope. Paul would write a good number of years after the nativity scene and the birth of Christ, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, he could have just as easily and rightly said that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we could have stronger faith in Jesus. Or we could have strength to fight the fight in this life. And he says similar things elsewhere, but in Romans 15, his emphasis is that we would be a people defined by hope. So how does Matthew chapter 1 give us hope? It's a list of names and a brief angelic message to a man thousands of years ago. What awakens and strengthens our hope when we read the list of genealogies and Joseph's story? Our first lesson of Christmas hope from Matthew 1 is this, that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. I don't know that we'd have too many hands of objection to that thesis statement. Not, not on its face. I mean, we, we know this is true. God keeps his promises. I say that collectively for a generally defined group of people who are meeting, looking at their Bible, believing that it's true. Most of us aren't going to argue the alternative. We're not going to say God breaks his promises. But I think we still need the message because there are moments, there are seasons when life is hard and all we know is the darkness in the streets of Bethlehem and the sin effects and the error and the pining. And we're not quite to that place where others might be of, of easy joy and settled peace and life is good and God is good. We're not there. And it's in those moments that the devil will tempt us to believe that God doesn't keep his promises or that those promises are, they're there and they're kind of kept, but they're kind of pie in the sky. Maybe they're only true for some people. Maybe you have to live better than I live to know those kind of promises. So there will be seasons when it, you might not argue against the thesis, God keeps his promises, but you feel ill-equipped to argue for that thesis. So we need to hear it over and over again. God is a God of steadfast love. He is faithful. We need to remember that the psalmist often describes God not as a blob of jello, but as a rock because he doesn't change. What he says goes. What he promises, he keeps. So what do we learn about God's promises from Matthew chapter 1? You heard a portion of the story. 
I want to read just the beginning verses of the chapter. We won't read it all this week. Begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. We'll look through these names in another week or so. But I want us to just think of all of these fathers and sons. If you're reading from the authorized version, the, old, the King James version, you might have the begats there, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. That son was born to him. He fathered that son. And the list is long as there are other lists in the Bible as well that reflect this same pattern. I want us to look then to verse 21, which you heard earlier. This promise from God through the angel to Joseph. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua in the Hebrew, we would also translate it into the English, not just Jesus, but Joshua. It's the same name. So a very common Hebrew name. There are many Yeshua's that Jesus probably grew up with. Be like going to school and there's someone else by your name in the classroom and the teacher would have to keep them straight. It's a common name because God's people celebrated what this name meant. Jehovah saves. Salvation is of the Lord. So call this son Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name took on a new meaning with this son. It wasn't just that God saves, but call this son by this name specifically, for he will be the agent by which God saves his people. That sounds like good news, and it is. But how is it related to the promise of God? Because that's what we're focused on. Is Matthew 1 really telling us that God keeps his promises? And I think we see it is. You'll even see in the text there that this took place to fulfill what had been said by God through his prophet. So God is keeping his promise, but what was the promise? We need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis to understand the beginning of this promise. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we read of the the beauty and the perfection, the goodness of creation, not only of all the land and sea and all the animal kingdom, but also of humanity as male and female, fundamental to the beginning of understanding humanity, and yet so seemingly confusing to our culture, having rejected everything God has said, But there's the goodness of creation, the goodness of the garden, the goodness of fellowship with God, the goodness of uh, the blessing of living with him and enjoying all that he has made. It's all good. Even the command of the Lord is good. Don't eat of this tree, because if you do so, you will surely know what it is to die. Later, God would tell us that his laws, his commandments are for our good always. 
In the midst of this goodness, the devil comes to tempt, and that's what we find in Genesis chapter 3. He questions the goodness of God. That age-old tool would be used through the generations against God's people, and it works in Eden. Adam and Eve doubt God's goodness, reject his benevolent lordship, and choose to live life their own way. They follow their desires, they eat of the fruit, and verse 7 tells us their eyes were opened, they knew they were naked, they covered themselves, and they ran and they hid from God. This, this realm of perfection, perfect belonging, perfect acceptance, perfect purity is all shattered by sin so that nothing's right anymore. And, and covering and hiding and fear become the new norm. And to be quite frank, we know this even in close relationships. We struggle to fully trust someone. Even in the intimacy of, of, of a married couple, there can be a fear of what the other will think of appearance. And, and it all flows from the wreckage of sin. As close as marriage tries to get us to the, to the sweetness of what true belonging and love and intimacy should look like, Genesis 3 keeps us from perfection. So Adam and Eve have sinned. And God comes. He finds them there in the garden. We know the account. They begin blaming each other. And God has to unfold for them the consequences of sin and what it means. And we call it a curse on all of creation, and Romans 8 reminds us of that. A curse specifically to the, to the, the design and the, the, the gifting and strength of manhood and, and of womanhood. There's particularly aimed hardships that they will suffer as a consequence. And in the language of this hardship and this consequence, we have... In verse 15, what theologians have called the proto-evangel. Proto meaning first, evangel being the word good news, gospel. The first gospel. You see, we know what a prototype is. We have this idea, and it's presented, and you kind of know how it's supposed to work, but that prototype, it might change a little bit. It might be improved or morphed into something a little better, more targeted purpose. But the prototype helps us understand the proto-evangel. There was something said here, and it's, it's going to evolve in, its, in progressive revelation about what it is exactly, but it's there in its first kind of mysterious form the proto-evangel, the first gospel, the first promise. I will put enmity, God said, between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. That alone is good news. Because right now, all of humanity has just chosen sides. They're on the devil's side. And God say, no, it's not going to stay like that. I'm going to divide. I'm going to put enmity between you and the one you've chosen as your father, as your Lord. 
You're not going to stay in that kingdom. I'm not going to leave humanity to the devil. I'm going to divide his empire. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You say that... That doesn't sound like what you would say to that lost coworker over lunch when they ask about your faith, right? But remember, it's that proto-evangel. It, it's a promise tucked away in actually the language of curse on the devil. But it, it's good news when we really stop and examine what God is saying he's going to do. This leads us to our first understanding of God's promises. God's promises revealed the hope of gospel remedy. Long ago, in the language of a curse, in his address to the serpent, the devil, there were words used that revealed the hope of a remedy for sin, a gospel remedy. The promise began in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 when God promised a conflict between the devil's way and the way of humanity, the seed of the woman. God promised a fix, a solution to the ruin and the fallout of sin. As you look through the rest of the story and see them exiled from the garden and the covering and all that took place, we're, we, we get the beginning of an understanding of this gospel remedy that God promised a healing of the relationship. You won't always be on the devil's side. You won't always be hiding from me. He promised a peace to the conflict. He promised a covering of the shame that they felt. He promised a righteousness for their now record of law-breaking he promised them a welcome for the exile. Genesis 3 is a sad chapter, but it is not without hope. Hope that would be realized 2,000 years later on a day we now call Christmas. The day when the gospel remedy was born. And the proto-evangel, that mysterious language, seed of a woman, which in and of itself is kind of backwards biologically. Everything about it seemed mysterious. And what does that mean? We would come to know what it means. Because the apostles would say, we have touched and handled God in the flesh. The sin remedy was born in Bethlehem. God's promises revealed the hope of gospel remedy. So when he says, call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin, call that son Jesus. Call that seed of the woman Jesus. Because he fulfills the promise that the gospel would remedy the ruin of sin. So God keeps his promises. And the promises of God began long ago with the promise of this gospel remedy. Those promises of God in the Old Testament did more than just offer a solution. Yes, the seed of the woman would come. That's the solution. 
But the promises of God throughout the Old Testament progressively described that solution. So we kind of know what we're looking for. That's number two. God's promises pictured the work of Messiah. So when Joseph hears of this saving work that his son would accomplish, what would that saving look like? Theologically, practically, what would it look like? And again, we start with that story of the original promise in Genesis 3.15 because we learn something of the work of God's Messiah there, his promised one. We realize that his work would be a dying work. A few ideas that aren't on your notes. A dying work. In the immediate remedy of Genesis 3, animals died so that their skins could cover Adam and Eve in their nakedness. And we realize that whatever God's going to do to remedy sin, it's going to involve dying. After all, the wages of sin is death. And for anyone to escape those wages, someone's going to have to die. Clothing Adam and Eve was a temporary fix, but we learned something about the promise to save. It would involve a dying work, but Messiah's work would also be a covering work. Again, from Genesis 3, we know that. Sin, in part, was remedied by a covering. Sin, in full, would be remedied by a covering. The language of atonement isn't used in Genesis 3, But as the Mosaic law unfolds, as the sacrificial system unfolds, as the story of humanity unfolds, atonement becomes a recurring theme. Atonement means to cover. And so even the great ark of safety into which Noah and his family entered is carefully described as being built as this refuge from the wrath of God and it is atoned for, the language in Hebrew is. It's covered in pitch. We learn something that covering is integral to this process of rescue and salvation. Messiah's work would be a righteous work. When God promised to save the firstborn sons of the Israelites from that tenth plague on Egypt, the promise called for a spotless or perfect lamb to be sacrificed in the stead of the death of the firstborn son. A perfect lamb could die in the place of the son. Peter would remind us in his first letter that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, meaning God's promises were unfolding for us The answer to the question, what is this saving, rescuing work going to look like? It's going to have something to do with righteousness, with perfection. It's going to be a dying work. It's going to be a covering work, but it's going to be this righteous work. Somehow the righteous are pulled in to the remedy for the unrighteous. All through the Old Testament, it was the righteous or perfect lambs and animals. But somehow we know from that Old Testament that that's not the whole story. That event of Passover and the laws of Moses regarding sacrifices would teach us that Messiah's work 
was most graciously a substitutionary work. It was a dying work, a covering work, a righteous work. It was a substitutionary work, meaning it was done in the place of someone else. In the Old Testament, the animal sacrifice, the animal died on behalf of the guilty human, the sinner. So the perfection of the spotless animal, its righteousness, we'll call it, was counted to the record of the sinner. And the sinner, whatever their sin was in that week, that month, that year, that sin was counted to the animal. There was a substitution made. And and even help the people understand this, to be reminded of it, there would be a laying on of hands. And so when that sinner brought their animal to the, the fence of the tabernacle or temple, they would give it to the priest and he would lay his hands on the animal, signifying their sin is now on him. Guilty. And he went to the death. Whereas the sinner that came leaves innocent, declared righteous. And back to their tent they went. There was a substitution that was made. Or as Isaiah said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our sin was laid on him so that we could have peace with God. The chastisement of our peace, it says. The chastisement that would accomplish peace. The wages of sin is death. There's only one way to remedy this. Somebody dies. And then justice is satisfied. But our chastisement was laid on him so that we could know peace. There was a substitution. Remember an old gospel song, His Death for My Life. What a wondrous exchange. By his stripes, we are healed. That's not just Easter, that's Christmas. God keeping his promise. And what we see is that the Old Testament promised a gospel remedy, but the Old Testament was also promising to us what that remedy would look like. In God's promise to save, we were learning what salvation would look like. God promised a perfect priest with a perfect substitute sacrifice. God promised a perfect prophet with the perfect and complete truth. He promised a perfect king who would reign in perfect righteousness and absolute power. In these promises from God, we see what the work of Messiah would be in saving us. Number three. But in all these Old Testament promises, one theme catches our attention. And rightly so. It seems to be the most common theme of God's promise on how he would save. Number three, God's promises emphasized a son as the Savior. God's promises emphasized a son as the Savior. Genesis 3.15, the seed 
of the woman. Something about offspring is significant from the very beginning. And then, a few generations later, we have this promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12 that from Abraham would come a great empire, a great family. Well, that implies a descendant, an immediate descendant, a son, he would be called. Then God calls Abraham to sacrifice that son that he finally receives in Genesis 22. And in that story, we hear two other important promises that emphasize this son theme. One of them is this. God promises to provide for himself a lamb for the offering. And then God tells Abraham... In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. There's something about the son that we should be looking for. A son. God will provide himself the sacrifice, the remedy, but it will come through Abraham, through, through his, his literal descend, descendants. In the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn son is the judgment unless a spotless substitute lamb is offered as the sacrifice. Even as Moses appears before Pharaoh, he says that famous line, for God, let my people go. But my people, Israel, is called God's firstborn son. The Old Testament will not let us escape the fact that sonship is at the center of rescue, God's plan of salvation. Not only to make us sons, but our salvation accomplished through something of sonship. As Israel becomes a great nation, David sits on the throne of the empire. And towards the end of his life, we read this covenant promise to David from God. 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We zoom in on that text. A descendant of David will build a house and will sit on the throne. And zoomed in on that text, right there in the life of David, we say, I know who that is. It has nothing to do with Christmas. It's Solomon, right? Absolutely. But there's more to it. Because there would be another son, oh, from the very body of David, from the very lineage of David. So if you read the Christmas story this year from Luke 2, don't just rush over those narrative details. They went to Bethlehem because he was the house of the house and lineage of David. That matters because of this covenant to David. Someone from David's body would establish the kingdom, build a house, and sit on a throne. It's just that the son that would come after Solomon down the line, the son, would build a much more significant house than any temple made with hands, Hebrews says. 
And he would sit on the throne not just for 40 years as Solomon did, but forever. The promise of a son. And then there are the multiple genealogies of the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, became the Israelites who are numbered by their family genealogies in the book of Numbers. And then you have lengthy genealogies, nine straight chapters of it in 1 Chronicles. All those opening chapters are families and descendants, fathers and sons and fathers and sons and fathers and sons. Ezra and Nehemiah record more lists of families and family trees. And our passage in Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the New Testament. And what does it begin with? A list of names, really? But it's more than that. It's a list of names. And every name that we can't pronounce is saying, God keeps his promises. Do you remember what he said? A son would be born. A seed of the woman promised to Abraham. Promise to David, promise to every generation, announced through the prophet, look for a child born, a son given. So when we open up Matthew and read genealogies, this is a big deal because every begat means we're one step closer to saying, I knew it. God keeps his promises. Jesus has come. The son who can bear the weight of our sin and sustain the weight of world dominion, whose rule will know no end. He's come. That's what genealogies mean. That's what begat means. It means God keeps his promises. In Luke chapter 1, it's a son that's promised to Zechariah. As a sign, Messiah is coming quickly. So Zechariah's son is a son that readies us for the son, the Messiah. And when Mary is told that her miraculous son would be the fulfillment of God's promise, as a good Jewish girl, she would have known the proto-evangel, that the seed of the woman, perhaps even in that proto-evangel, Something of that mysterious virgin birth. Not the seed of a man, not a father begat, but virgin born. She would have marveled as she sang that song recorded in Luke chapter 1 of the mercy of God in saving sinners. Paul said it well in the text we heard earlier. When the fullness of time had come. You know how many fathers begat sons in the history of the Israel, Israelite family that would have thought maybe it's this generation, maybe it's this son. That's why Paul would say in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And for the last 2,000 years now, Christmas has offered us hope, the hope that God keeps his promises. They, they may be long in the keeping, but they will be kept. He is faithful and true. Finally, 
We can indeed look back and marvel at the promises that have been kept, but let us also look forward to the promises that will be kept. Number four, God's promises anticipate a final victory and a new creation. The angel told Joseph that this son will save his people from their sins. When we put our faith in Jesus, there really is an immediate result. The sinner who who knows that his sin has ruined him and will earn him eternal punishment and separation from God. When that sinner repents and believes in Jesus, there is the immediate result of being justified, declared righteous. The immediate result of being forgiven. The immediate result of a stamped adoption certificate. We're saved, we say. But there is also a result of salvation that is yet to be experienced. Romans 8 reminds us that we await the fullness of the inheritance of our redemption. That being the full experience of all the promise of God of peace and joy and sinlessness. So salvation is fully ours now. But it's fully realized in a day to come. I think we understand that. We know we're saved and we're going to be in heaven, but we also know we're not in heaven yet. And that will be even better than all of the blessing of God now that we we experience. Remember, our standing is secure. We are saved now, but there's something about the full experience of the benefits of it that comes later. So in other words, God's promises are, are still lingering out there. He still has things that he said he was going to accomplish in the saving of his people. And in summary, those are final victory and new creation. Final victory, 1 John 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2 tells us that he made a spectacle of his enemies when he died on the cross. He began the victory march. He began the defeat, the dismantling of the devil's kingdom. But it's not complete yet. That final victory, the final destruction of the works of the devil will take place. And he will be bound and cast into eternal hell. As will then death and hell and the devil all cast into the lake of the fire in that final judgment. In other words, every enemy of God, the final enemy, death included, will be defeated. But that victory that began at Calvary is continuing and will culminate then in what we would call a Philippians 2 scene where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Every evil judged, every righteousness vindicated, final victory. Every Christian believes this. You could be what's called dispensational or covenant theologian. You could be premillennial. You could think there's a rapture, that Christ is coming before the tribulation, during the tribulation, after the tribulation. So you're 
dispensational, premillennial, or dispensational, premillennial, mid-trib, post-trib. There's all kinds of names and categories and ideas. And you know what? When we all get to heaven, somebody's going to say, I told you so. I had it right. But we all agree on this. Jesus wins. And, and let's face it, that's not, that's not easy to see looking around, is it? But that's why we have books like First Peter that tell us, listen, you're a pilgrim passing through and it's going to be a mess. But keep in mind, Jesus wins. Final victory. So not only do we await that promise of final victory, but we wait the promise of new creation. When we just don't have to tolerate brokenness anymore. We don't have to tolerate sin and its effects. Deformity and disease and death. It's all taken care of. So to learn from Matthew 1 and a list of names and a history of the Old Testament that God keeps his promises is, is rich for us, looking forward, feeling like it's a long journey to home. It's a long journey. How long, O oh Lord? How long do we watch people that we love die from the cancers and the other ailments? How long does age take its toll on us and just grind us down to the grave? How long do we gawk at disability and then step back and wonder, what is God doing in this? How long do we say goodbye too soon to family and loved ones? It's good for us to stand at the grave with a clenched fist and hate death, to hate sin and its consequence, and to remember that not only will Jesus win, but as the victor, he decides to make all things new. A new heaven, a new earth, new bodies for every one of us, and never a threat of any of it being tainted. Revelation 21. After a lot of promises of what he will do, he says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. When when Jesus says, I am making all things new, it's like he told his angel, now take a highlighter and go over that again so that nobody will miss that this is true. No matter what we suffer in this lifetime, it does not compare to the glory that will be revealed. Jesus will make all things new. And you can write those words down and believe them because they are emphasized in a special way by the voice of Jesus saying it is trustworthy and true. God's promise to us yet to be fulfilled is that he will make all things new, a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, new mountains and seas to enjoy, new animals, new plants, new bodies, new everything. 
without sin, without pain, without brokenness, without even longing, without sorrow, without death. This, my friends, is Christmas hope. This is what it means for us to think that God keeps his promises. He kept his promise to send a son to be our savior. So repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus and receive perfect righteousness from Jesus, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. And in this season of Christmas, as a Christian, remember, this is the birth of the Savior King who has made campaign promises that will be kept. And even though we rest in the hope of salvation, even though we celebrate the birthday of a king, we will groan as we suffer through the hardships and brokenness of this pilgrim life. But we will do so clinging to the promises that God has made. Final victory and new creation await. And then we'll sing once and for all, no more. Let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he has come to make his blessing known as far as the curse is found. And that will be a day of forever. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for the promises that unfold, promises kept and promises yet to be fulfilled. But as we look at promises kept and celebrate the promise of a Messiah, a son, a savior, Jesus, born in Bethlehem so many years ago, we are encouraged to look forward, believing that not one promise to us will fail. Father, lead us to a full faith in your promises promise of a savior, of a king, of a home in heaven with you. And so we thank you for the gift of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.